Now, I'd like to paint a picture of, uh, if I could, really of the context of a good portion of the book of Acts as we think about this beginning. Because I think it's important for us to, as we regale in this joyful church that the Lord has built in, in, uh, in the city of Jerusalem with the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, His ascension into heaven, His giving of the Holy Spirit, and just really the, the incredible, um, perhaps could be described almost as the bursting forth of spring in the, in the church here. Um, and I think it's important that we see that when, we, when you take a long look, even just into the historical narratives of the book of Acts, what we see is certainly at least uh, a window into the strategy that God had as He built this church because of the resiliency that was absolutely necessary in the life of this church. Imagine all of the things that would happen, good and challenging, to the church in Jerusalem. We know that Herod and Pilate, for instance, the governor, declared Jesus innocent, yet delivers him to be crucified. So think about just uh, the the civil situation at the time. So the most uh, prestigious uh, and rigorous legal system that then existed in the universe had declared the Lord Jesus innocent. But then they sent him off to be crucified. And we experience in our own day the absolute travesty uh, of what is, what is a breathtaking rejection of rule by law. Imagine how they felt in that time. Jesus is crucified. He's in the tomb for three days, rises again to see his disciples, and then ascends into heaven. I mean, wow. Imagine just what it was like for them there. The redeemed gather, about 120 for prayer. The Holy Spirit descends upon them. Peter preaches, and 3,000 were added to the church. Peter and John are brought before the religious council. Peter preaches to them, and they tell him to no longer speak about Jesus. Peter flatly refuses and says, Shall we stop speaking of the name of the Lord? The answer, of course, was no. Ananias and Sapphira drop dead for lying to the Holy Spirit. The apostles are arrested. Deacons are selected. Stephen preaches in a stone. Saul ravages the church. All this, of course, occurred after the passage that we're going to look at today. Yet the church enjoyed the fellowship of the redeemed. The truly primitive church in its infancy and in its innocency as well, we delight ourselves in these certain marks of a God-ordained fellowship of believers but we also must be sure to mark the diligence necessary, not only to keep what the Lord has wrought in us, but to grow in the graces which the Lord has started, realizing that even the most pristine water will stagnate if not diligently kept. All you biology students out there, do you know why water stagnates? Apparently it has much to do with motion. It has to do with activity. Um, and, and so we see that, of course, the Lord's church is quite busy as they follow Him. Uh, and so it seems in some ways certainly an appropriate illustration as we consider this passage of Scripture. So again, as we think about 
the, the wonderful and delightful joy that is expressed in, in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. We have a, a window into just the beauty of this church and what the Lord is doing. But let's not forget the incredible strategic purpose that God has in this strength and power and resiliency of this faithful fellowship and what it was certainly, uh, what it took to create it, uh, none other than the decree of God through the death and resurrection of His Son, the second person of the Trinity, but also the sweat, blood, and tears of the people there. So let's look here, beginning in verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Let's break this down a little bit. The apostles' teaching, we understand, of course, that was, that was the very basis for their understanding of, of how to even understand the Messiah, right? As we think about the Old Testament and the access they had to the Scriptures, the apostles, what did they preach from? The Old Testament. The Lord Jesus referred, of course, to the Old Testament. But what we see in the Old Testament, uh, as we've discussed before, it's as if it's the same room, the same furniture, but all the lights get turned on. Now you can see what's there. And that was the advent of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? As He comes, He shows all of the world what the Lord has been doing all this time. And so we have this, this the, the, the importance of uh, the teaching of, of God. We understand that, that our God, our Father in heaven, has intended that the church, by its very nature, be drawn into and have as a significant portion of uh, their fellowship the teaching of the Word of God. Right, And so we see that here. It's laid out for us. It isn't a new idea, of course. Synagogue, temple had the same sort of emphasis, if you will. But we also see the character of the redeemed here in Acts chapter 2. It's one thing to be committed, right, as a church, uh, or perhaps even as leaders of a church. Those are used, uh, those people that are used, uh, uh, you know, by, by God's uh, grace to... To, uh, to, to teach these things, but it's another thing altogether about its receptivity, right? But we see here that the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. I'm persuaded this isn't a reference to those doing the teaching, it was a reference to those doing the listening, right? Certainly we have, you know, an emphasis on the importance of of the qualifications and the preparation of those that would teach the Word of God. But nonetheless, we also have the receptivity of that. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were willing to be taught. They were discipled such as to be lifelong learners. They earnestly received the truths of God's Word, viewed as instrumental in their relationship to Christ. What is it in your life that seems to be absolutely necessary? What would you say? I mean, if you had to... Had to think about that. You might even, certainly there are some material things you find particularly necessary. When Shackleton got off the ship Endurance, as he saw it crushed in the ice there, he had to, he had to pick things that were necessary. It was a small thing. A small bag he had, no doubt. 
So it was very critical that you make the right decisions. What is it in your life that you find particularly necessary, physical and spiritual? Likely it would come down to relationships, right? Special things, perhaps. But this is one of the aspects of their devotion to these things. Not only to the apostles' teaching, but also to fellowship. Their common bond at worship, at meals, and sharing their material goods. There's a mutual affection. Their redemption inclined them to appreciate rich, genuine fellowship. But you can find that everywhere, right? Rich, genuine fellowship? I don't think so. We know that our righteousness from the Lord Jesus Christ is an alien righteousness. It's not our own. And we should also understand that the delight we have in the fellowship one with another because of our redemption is also, it is not of this world. I mean, it is a, it is a wonderful, beautiful thing. And it's something that, that uh, we know that has as its source the life that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us, but we also recognize that, that we've, we've got to keep it and maintain it. It takes work, right? It takes work and involvement. It takes an earnestness, a sincerity in our own lives. And so we see also that they were devoted to this. It's not just a, it, this isn't a, a, a sort of a once over lightly affection for fellowship, but it's a recognition that fellowship is, has a means by which it's accomplished. It is a process day by day. And we will see this idea, this phrase uh, that shows up in verse 46. Day by day, also in verse 47, is not merely a reference to marking the days of the week, but it's this idea of a continuity. They were, they were committed to, devoted to these things, to this process, to this routine of goodness, of joy, of involving themselves, investing themselves in this way. And so we, we see that in this passage as well. So there was not only... Not only a mutual affection, but there was mutual conversation. Now, conversation, children, is a kind of an old uh, term that sometimes, uh, you know, we, we think about conversation, we think of speaking and listening, right? But also, there's this idea of conversation having to do with really doing life together. Um, and, and so, if you were to study this passage and using some old Old books, you might see the term conversation, but the reality is, is we're talking about doing life together. We, we, we see that the New Testament church really did life together every day. They were around, and and uh, no doubt you uh, have delighted yourselves in in this idea, and you appreciate likely as one who's been. Plucked from the fire, as the Apostle Paul says, to, to be so very thankful for the fact that you're the, the hub of your social activity uh, is the church, and it should be. That's God's intent. And so uh, let us not be ashamed of the fact that the very source of the sweetness of our affections for one another, the place that we look for help, uh, the place that we look to tell people our good news or that they might pray for us over some difficult challenge would also be the church. 
And I would like to draw your attention as we think about this fellowship to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, Peter certainly was a leader of the church in Jerusalem. Peter witnessed these things. Peter was used mightily by the Lord in these things. But as we think about the cultivation of faithful fellowship, let's look and see what Peter thought of how to maintain, how to, how to cultivate, how to involve themselves, how to keep, if you will, the sweetness of this fellowship in Second Peter Chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. He says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self control, self control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we could go on, but we see here that our adoption in Christ involves, uh, if you will, the the kernel, the seed of the life-giving element of these elements. But we see that Peter is insisting, right, that there's got to be this growth adding to this faith. Where do we get faith? It's not in you, right? God gives us this saving faith. We we understand that. He speaks of it in a number of different places. But we're adding to this faith by the power of the Holy Spirit these things. Virtue, which is an energy. It's a moral energy. Knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. These kinds of things. These are the elements. This is what makes the church what it is. Right? And so we, 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 it's important that we see there's not some sort of magical potion. Right? But that we're a people, by the grace of God, are committed to these things. No doubt Peter had that in mind as he thought about the church. Now back to Acts chapter 2. Verse 42. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now this breaking of bread, an interesting idea. We we have uh, the phrase really shows up twice here. We have it again in 46. So there's a little bit of uncertainty whether this means the ordinance of the Lord's Supper or... Uh, a fellowship meal, or a love feast, or something like that. And the it seems that most Bible students are persuaded that this particular reference in verse 42 is to the Lord's Supper, and then the prayers, likely with this uh, definite article, the prayers, has to do also with a formal worship service. So we see how they were committed to one another, how they invested themselves, right, uh, in the ordinances of Christ, also, of course, in worshiping the Lord. Verse 43, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. We see the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, gave the ability to the apostles to 
to do some healing and to do uh, some other things, but also there was this this otherworldly fellowship that gained certainly a certain attraction from the people that were looking upon them. The church and the community amazed at what God is doing in their midst. They took notice. In a conversation, perhaps, that you've had with your neighbor or co-worker, have they ever implied a bit of uh, awe over the way you describe your involvement in a fellowship? Because, I mean, not everyone does this, you know. Not everyone has the the base of sincere friendship that you have available to you here. Not everyone has the investment, the soul investment that you have here. Not everyone has the, the, the resource capability that the Lord has brought together in His body of local believers right here. You know, uh, if, if, if and when I'm in trouble... I just want you to know I'm I'm going to call somebody in this room, okay? Okay, so so I mean and and I encourage you to do the same. Right? So when the hard times come, whatever the case may be, your car breaks down, your air conditioner stops working, you run out of water, right? Whatever the case may be, I'm 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 calling one of y'all, okay? So so you I mean who else would I call? You know, uh, so so this is a, this is an important idea that we see here in this sweet fellowship and their commitment to the things of God and the awe around them. Now, verses forty-four and forty-five, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is not communism. Okay? So, that's not what's happening here. Alright? We're not establishing the principles that, you know, would, would, be, would be there for that. Now, we should understand that uh, the Old Testament establishes the, the idea that the church, if you will, in the Old Testament, God's people, uh, it was God's design that they would banish poverty from their midst. That they would commit themselves to helping those in need. And this really speaks uh, to God's sovereignty in the way that He works and also the importance of vocation and the idea, really in a sense of place, of this idea that God puts us in places and gives to us certain abilities, right? In our um, interesting... I could... uh, way that our culture works we may be inclined, and it is very likely that we're inclined to think that we are where we are, particularly if we seem to be uh, successful, that we are there primarily because of our own grit. Now, grit is very important, right? Hard work is very important. The Lord honors that. We see that to be true. But we also understand 
And likely we have met people who work very hard and who are very skilled at what they do uh, and have uh, certainly been wise and strategic in the things that they do, right? But the Lord, the Lord has, has gifted them differently. And a result of that is that we see there's, again, this, the intent is a mutual dependence in the church, right? And so we see that here. There's this recognition of how the Lord would use each one in the other's lives. Now, they're referred to as believers here. All who believed were together and had things in common. Faith in Christ, of course, the principal requisite for belonging to the Christian community. Faith in the Lord Jesus. Not only as the justifier of those that have come to Christ, right? But faith in all that He has displayed in His Word. Faith to live as God has called us to live. They're believers. It is true, uh, no doubt, uh, there were some in the New Testament church that delighted themselves in the joyful busyness of the church and had no intent to be drawn in and become a believer. They, they liked the buzz. They appreciated uh, some of the aspects of the fellowship that they certainly took advantage of. But they never really stepped in to the fellowship. And so that, in a sense, certainly is addressed here as well. To do things by faith is to earnestly do those things revealed in Scripture, though they may seem socially awkward or bring the mockery of the world. They shared all things. They were glad they gave to anyone who might have need, not as a divestment of wealth, but as a willingness on the part of the owners to place their possessions at the disposal of those believers who were needy. Now this takes a trust, right? This takes a significant level of trust. Because if you have anything to give, you worked for that more than likely, right? It involves an investment in your own life for you to to work at whatever it is that took to get whatever it is that you're going to give. And that's that's a thing that you give over. And sometimes if there's not this deep level of genuine trust, then it appears... And it can create, certainly, a sense of entitlement, right? And, uh, and we, we want to appropriately reject that concept, but then yet also be free with the things that we give, delighting ourselves in what God is doing. We see verses 46 and 47. Day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. Every day. God's work isn't static. It's not static, right? Static is kind of the opposite of dynamic, children. So if something's static, that means it's not moving. And we are very thankful for some things that don't move. I'm really thankful my house doesn't move. That's good. I'm really thankful these walls are static and not dynamic, right? So, so dynamic is this, this, this thing of moving, but it's not just any movement, not mere movement, right? It's, it's biblical movement. What are you doing? And that's one of the things that, 
that uh, this most recent um, big evangelical phenomenon, if you will, the market-driven concept, really took advantage of an understanding of movement, right? And so the concept is, is that when you create a stir amongst a fellowship, people come to that. But what we also see is absolutely normalized is the temporary nature of people's involvement in that kind of church, right? So it's, it's a flash in the pan. It's movement for movement's sake. This sort of big lights kind of idea to draw people in with the things that make movement, not the things of God. So we, but we see here the, the certainty of a genuineness in their fellowship. This is what the Lord is doing. This is, this is a result of the devotion to the apostles' teaching, to the Word of God in these things. And we, we extract out of that, we look to that for our doctrine, for what we do and how we do it. The Christians in Jerusalem went to temple which for them was God's house, meeting in the temple courts, probably Solomon's colonnade for prayer and for praise. We see that here. They went day by day to the temple together. They broke bread in their homes. Likely this is a reference to to the meals that they ate together. They enjoyed complete unity in a context that compares to the bursting forth of life. That's what we see. So they weren't receiving persecution. Doubtless their joyful unity in Christ built incredible resiliency and buoyed them them in the, the, the coming difficulties. The church must remain joyful and strong in life to truly take the kingdom by force. We see... Again, a a window into the strategy that God has for this joyful, life-giving fellowship that God shows us in Acts chapter 2. So that they can then take the kingdom by force. Now, I'd like to spend a few minutes on this phrase because it is a phrase that uh, you hear from me a bit. And so I'd like to draw your attention to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. Beginning in chapter, uh, as I said, chapter 11 there, verse 7. So as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John, that is John the Baptist. And he asked the question, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is risen no one, no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. And the violent take it by force. 
a fascinating idea. A very, very important idea when we think about the kingdom of God bursting into a sinful world. And what the Lord Jesus is putting us on notice here, and we see, of course, revealed in the narrative history in the book of Acts, is this. If we learn anything in the book of Acts, it's this. Nobody stumbles into the kingdom. Nobody stumbles into the kingdom. You don't lean against the door of the kingdom and fall in. It's not how it works. Now you could tell your own story. If God has redeemed you, you can tell your own story. And likely your story doesn't involve leaning against a door that you fall in. There is certainly a mystery in the way that God calls us, but we see, for instance, the way that John Bunyan described this and commentated, I'm persuaded on this verse, was when Christian was at the interpreter's house, the interpreter brought him to a beautiful palace, and there were a number of rough-hewn men standing outside the door. And there was an interesting character sitting at a desk with an inkhorn writing down names of people who were trying to go into the door to the palace. And what what the looker-on, what the valiant man saw, was that those who would try to go through the door were accosted by people with swords and shields. And so, John Bunyan writes down, he says, so there was a valiant man that came up and he said, Sir... Set down my name. And he did. And Bunyan is quick to say that without being discouraged, he put his helmet on, drew his sword, and fought his way into the kingdom. And so, this is really a commentary on this passage of Scripture. And it certainly is a commentary for the necessity of this joyful, life-giving fellowship that God has created in the New Testament church that we delight ourselves in for sure. Those who would enter must strive to enter. Self must be denied. The disposition of the mind must be altered. Hard sufferings to undergo. A force is applied to the corrupt nature. We must run. We must wrestle. And we must fight our way into the kingdom. Verse 47, There was much praising, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. While Spurgeon certainly affirmed the sovereignty of God and salvation, he also affirmed that faithful churches see the Lord converting people in their midst. If we're the kind of disciples and disciple-makers that God had set up in this church, shown to us in Acts chapter 2, then we will certainly, and we should anticipate the Lord, bringing people into the kingdom in our midst. I'd like to spend a few minutes and think about an application of what we see here in this, this section of Scripture. So we think about just the glorious 
work that the Lord had done, something that they really had never experienced before, of course. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? The Messiah is here. All the things that the Old Testament system pointed to had come. He had started what he intended to start. And so, a few questions for us. Number one, can you trace the Lord's hand in what's been accomplished in the creation of our own assembly? Can you look and see the way the Lord works? Can you see that it's a direct connection to the Great Commission? Can you say that you're devoted to the Word of God as were those in the Jerusalem church? Are you devoted to the Apostles' teaching? You're likely saying yes. Well, let me ask you another question. Why do you say that? What's the evidence that you are devoted to the apostles' teaching? If you affirm that statement, then certainly there are reasons why you would affirm that statement. It's important for us to think about how it is. How do we express our devotion to the living Word of God. Many in this fellowship have personally experienced the cost of living not by lies, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote to his countrymen as he was banished to the West. And while we rightly reject the idea that if we proclaim and live by the apostles' teachings, We recognize the importance that God calls us to be not merely unconcerned about the clear biblical admonition to steadfast love and kindness. One of the things that we notice is that the harsh world has a way of rubbing off the contours of the character graces that our new birth cultivates and enables, poisoning the soul of their growth. What am I talking about? What I'm talking about is this. The church revealed in Acts chapter 2 was a church of conviction. It was a church established by the power of the Word of God, with the work of the Holy Spirit, committed to the principles that God had revealed way back in the beginning of the Word of God. Right, But we also understand that the kind of culture, the way that they received the Word of God and the situation that they received it can oftentimes result in a demeanor that is in fact very harsh and hard. Does that make sense? I draw your attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'll ask you to turn there. Now, so what am I doing? Okay, let's step back. We've, we've already regaled in this joyful, wonderful fellowship that's revealed in Acts chapter 2, right? And we have experienced that in many ways. There is a wonderful buzz of life in all that we do, right? And it's filled with goodness, right? But we also recognize that the very environment and the culture of our lives right now, the harshness of the world, the fact that we're committed to a biblical rigor 
and so forth, can sometimes incline us to a very business-like demeanor, right? But let's look at the Thessalonian church and see how they carried on this work of God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. What am I talking about? Well, this is what I'm talking about. When you snap at the people around you, when you defend yourself, when you are unkind, what do you often think about in your mind? Well, you likely come up with excuses that sound a little bit like this. I was tired. I've had a hard day. People are not nice to me at work. There was somebody nasty at the grocery store. All of this stuff, right? Right? But you see, you see, all of us are in that situation. Right? We receive the Word in much affliction. But what did the Thessalonians, how did they respond to that? With the joy of the Holy Spirit. We will continue to have haters. The Lord Jesus put us on notice in Genesis chapter 3. I will put enmity between you and the serpent. That's what He said. Right? He has created for us, as if it wasn't already there, this this, uh, polemic, catastrophic battle that would go on until the new heavens and the new earth. Right? And we win. The Lord Jesus Christ wins, but not without a fight. Taking the kingdom that will be established by force. Confessional commitment to doing church life biblically is not a popular idea. Right? It's not necessarily a simple idea. The leadership of a plurality of elders is the most cumbersome ineffective way to lead anything, okay? But it is a biblical methodology, and we delight ourselves in it. And I am absolutely thankful for every minute of it. It's wonderful, right? So, so again, it's the Lord's doing uh, that we see this. We have, we have the theological, biblical, historical high ground. There's every reason to be joyful about this and commit ourselves to persuading others of the same with conviction and urgency, right? And we don't look back, right? Apostle Paul said, we are pressing on, right? For what it is that God, for what it is that God has for us. We, we have delighted ourselves as we have Again, uh, imperfectly entered into what it is that the Lord has called us to. And we, I am persuaded, are enjoying these very trappings of a faithful church that Acts enjoyed. The The cruel world we live in that seems to be only more speedily heading for its demise 
has forces that certainly stagnate the pristine waters of the character graces and can make the warmest of fellowships mere insincere routine. Do you like insincere routine? Here we go again. Another Sunday morning. God help us. Never to think that way. And what are the means by which we can continue to stir ourselves up? This delightful joy spoken of in the passage in Acts 2 had a means for its continuance. What are we saying? The sweet fellowship that those in Acts enjoyed, there was a means by which God created this environment. Right? It's important that we see that. The love of a fellowship, the delightful being used of the Lord for new believers in Christ, the way that we enjoy ourselves, our relationship, the depth, the love, this sort of thing is a process that involves means. Warm love for one another, sincere concern for one another, seeing one another as a primary recipient of our ministry efforts. The people in our fellowship we should see as primary recipients of our ministry efforts, right? Recognition of the need for a transparent life and the need to be open to others, bringing your attention to a lack in expressing this love. Now, there are a number of things that we can do to work against the sweetness of our fellowship, right? One is being unconcerned about our own presence here. Expressing a lack of concern over growing in holiness, unkind speech, doing things that might bring reproach upon our fellowship. The way we raise our children, right? This sort of thing works against the sweetness that we have. Let us be a people who, though we receive the word in this cultural affliction that we're in, receive it with great joy. And I pray that uh, if you're not yet redeemed, that you will see that the joy that we have, the goodness of our fellowship is because of the Lord Jesus Christ, something that you must have. You must be born again. And let us here as God's people recognize the absolute urgency of following the Lord faithfully. Let's pray.